Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Gab Fest is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer, and have your postal carrier pick up your packages. Sign up for a no-risk trial and get $55 in free postage when you visit stamps.com and use the promo code GABFEST. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political GABFEST for September 26, 2014, the dead, dead Dead at 75 edition. I'm David Plotz, the editor-at-large of Slate in Washington, D.C. On this week's show, Eric Holder steps down as attorney general. Can you blame him? Then the president's war against ISIS, ISIL, whatever you want to call it. Is it wise and is it legal? And then an article in The Atlantic magazine written by a 57-year-old makes the case that you should die at 75. Plus cocktail chatter. I've got a great Teddy Roosevelt, another Teddy Roosevelt cocktail chatter this week. And in Slate Plus, the incredible story of John Downey, who was held as a prisoner of war longer than any person in American history. Emily Bazelon, still no longer a Slate editor, still unemployed, though. Still, yes. one, this is your last day of unemployment. Not joining the long-term unemployed is in New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hello, David. And John Dickerson, who had never been unemployed, probably. Have you ever been unemployed, John? Your Slate <laughs> senior editor. Um, no, he's not. Oh, you're not Slate Senior. You're Slate's chief political <laughs> correspondent. It depends. I <laughs> Let's see. My first job was in a se- summer of seventh grade, and I've had a job every either at some point during the year, every year since then. But has there ever been a period as an adult as where an you adult. didn't have a job? It depends. When I wrote my book, I took three months off, but that's not. No, you had a job. You had a job. You, no, no. You knew you I'm, were coming I'm same. to sleep. I'm, I'm exactly the same. Yeah. It's crazy. It is. I'd like to try and see what it feels like <laughs> to not have a job. It's weird. There's this way, the, the rhythm, I think of this as, because um, when you're a student, life is very seasonal and you feel the seasons, yeah. right? But then when you're working, the world becomes totally undifferentiated. Oh, I don't think that's true. I, feel the, I still feel the seasons from the school experience. I guess because your kids. And I feel kids. fall. But do you feel it for yourself? Or I feel, I feel it for kids? myself. I felt it for myself before we had kids. Just the fall in particular has a feeling of... You know, fall for me is like New Year's Eve is for everybody else. It's the beginning of new times. There are all kinds of uh, resolutions you make. Yeah, that's right. It is. It's a part of my longstanding Alinsky-like hidden effort to get into the Jewish faith. And then as an adult now, summer feels a lot more poignant because it's, I don't know. It's funny. I I guess guess now that I have kids or i've had kids for a long time that the seasonality, <laughs> yes, the actually, seasonality yes, yesterday seasonality has returned but i did feel before i had kids that i would wake up and i wouldn't have any idea what the, i wouldn't know what to wear i wouldn't know what season it was i wouldn't know what the weather was all the markers that told me okay here's what's going on i'd lost once i got out of school and so i'd be in the middle of winter and i wouldn't be sure like is it today a short day or today like a park a day i don't know because you just don't have something to tell you this is this part of the year. I cannot find myself uh, reflected in All your right. description. Okay. Speaking of nothing much in particular, we have a live show to announce. Actually, two, but one that we can ticket. 
on November 12th in Chicago at the Park West at 7.30. We are doing a live show. We have a special guest, Amy Dickinson. Ask Amy is going to be with us. You can get tickets for the show. John just gave a big thumbs up to that. You can get tickets for that show at slate.com slash chai gabfest, C-H-I gabfest, slate.com slash chai gabfest. It's sponsored by Acura. It's going to be a great show. It's going to be a special show. It's going to be our annual conundrum show, which means huge audience participation, lively, goofy, really fun. We did a live conundrum show last year. It was the best show we did all year. So come on out, Chicago, and see us at slate.com slash chai gabfest. And the week after that in New York will be our second Superfest. We cannot ticket that yet, but on November 17th in New York City with Culture Gabfest and Hang Up and Listen, we're going to do our Superfest East, and we will have tickets available for that next week. So we'll see you in Chicago or New York. It's going to be awesome. You yes. know, our producer, Mike Wolo, just handed me the perfect quote, which is kind of his job in life, is just to be there at the ready with the, it, life starts all over again when it gets crisp in the fall, said F. Scott Fitzgerald. I think that's one of those things F. Scott Fitzgerald probably didn't say, probably attributed to him, but I don't know, maybe. We'll see. Attorney General Eric Holder announced Thursday that he will be leaving the job as soon as President Obama appoints a replacement who is confirmed by the Senate. Holder is one of only three Obama cabinet members who've served his entire presidency, probably the most famous cabinet member after Hillary Clinton, and probably the most controversial. In fact, almost certainly the most controversial. He was held in contempt by the Republican House of Representatives over his Fast and Furious venture, or the Fast and Furious venture, maybe not his. He has been a bold pronouncer on issues around race and civil rights, pushed on uh, gay marriage as an issue, marriage equality as an issue. He has been excellent on prison reformation and reduction of prison sentences. And he's been the public face of the administration on Ferguson and the Ferguson catastrophe. So let's, let's pursue two main lines here. One is assessing Holder and two, measuring the question of whether Obama is going to be able to appoint a replacement or what that fight is going to be like. So Emily, Take us through Eric Holder. What are his triumphs? What are his shortcomings? You know, if you were giving him a letter grade, if you had to give him a mandatory minimum sentence, what would you give him? I would give him a kind of split letter grade. I guess that's lame. I mean, I would give him basically an A or an A minus on what I would define as civil rights. So racism, voting rights, criminal justice reform, which you mentioned, sentencing and gay marriage. He's been forceful and strong and really made a difference on those issues. And then the downside where I would give him more like a C plus, I think, is going along with the grabbing of executive power and state the state secrets privilege, which is this idea that the government raises in court to get rid of all lawsuits that would bring forth classified or maybe not even classified information that the government doesn't want to disclose. Holder went along with that. He went along with all the surveillance and spying by the National Security Agency, with the, you know, Obama administration's very suspect theories for waging war in Libya and now Syria, which we're having. So when you look at the aspects of his tenure that I think Holder cared about the most, namely these marches towards more forceful civil rights, I think he's been pretty amazing. And then on executive power and kind of going along with the problem every administration has, where you might out of office in a campaign be critical of usurpation of power, but then when it's you 
getting the security briefings, suddenly you become very protective of the nation's security in a way which leads you, I think, to define it poorly and to set really bad precedents. You know, I don't think Holder has has been good on any of that. Hard to know how much he's really to blame. Um, Maybe he pushed back inside and lost. I don't know. But it's not like as the nation's chief law enforcement officer, he was really standing up for the nation's interest in that way. John, one of the weird things about Holder is how despised he is by Republicans. He, Attorney General Janet Reno actually had this, she became a figure of, of loathing. Maybe it's not funny. Maybe this is just generally what happens. That you know, Alberta John Gonzalez Ashcraft, was Alberta Gonzalez Ashcraft. and John Because they are, at the, they are at the center what, of the So what hottest, is it? Why do AGs, yeah. why do those positions get, get so toxic? Well, I th- for two reasons. One, they are either by choice at the center of those things or they become the one of the places part is oh so sorry <laughs> so the justice department touches on all of these hot button issues it's why the judiciary committees in both the house and senate tend to have your most partisan fighters in them because they touch on prayer in school and abortion and every like hot button social and cultural issue, not to mention all the crime and punishment issues, which also get very heated very fast. And so there are those issues that the attorney generals step on and get in the middle of. And then there is the attorney general's office as a location for a lot of anger. And what interests me about looking at his legacy is when you're deciding where he fell short, it seems to me you also have to decide what he had some control over. So what role does the attorney general really have in forming administration policy on national security? Now, he could resign and so you could do that. So when you evaluate his shortcomings on the kind of civil liberties, national security side, where does he come up short and where is he just a member of an administration that comes up short? Spying on journalists, he has a more active role in that than, say, something like closing Guantanamo, where there are lots of other forces. The president plays a role in that. Michael Bloomberg plays a role in that. Congress plays a role in that. And then I think you also have to balance against that. I'm fascinated lately, but always have been with bandwidth and what a president or any cabinet official can do in the course of a day. And Eric Holder, if his goal in life is to change the way minorities and African-Americans are treated by the criminal justice system and to speak about race in a way that an African-American president can't speak about it, he is taking on a huge set of complicated controversial issues, causing a lot of headaches for the president, changing the way people view him. If you're going to do all that, you can't then go do the same amount of hardcore controversial stuff on civil liberties. I mean, you have to pick your battles. And so I think you also have to see those two sets of issues as being kind of linked in terms of just the number of hours in the day, then the amount of politics an attorney general can get involved in. And So I think that's a part of his assessment. I would just add to that. I like that framing. His failure to go after any of the big Wall Wall Street Street bad actors from um, the financial meltdown. Again, maybe that was really reflecting policies of the Treasury Department or other financial advisors, but he's kind of implicated there. And then I would actually give him credit for trying to – hold the trial of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed in New York. I mean, he had to back down. He retreated. But that was a battle he picked that's not part of the sort of core civil rights legacy. One of the arguments I've heard on the Wall Street point is that it was a matter of law. In other words, the cases were 
difficult, not open and shut, that uh, some of the plea deals he got were sort of the best he could get. And yeah. then it's a- but that's what they always – that's what you say is like, oh, we couldn't do it because it was – but attorneys general and U.S. attorneys push things – yeah. To make a case. To make right. A but cause. didn't they lose some – didn't Lanny Brewer lose some huge case that is they a part of this? They did lose one of – they did lose – didn't they lose an insider trading case? Yeah, they lost but, a big insider trading okay, case. But they also won a few cases. The U.S. Attorney's Office in New York won a few cases. I mean, I mean this goes – Right, right, right. It's hard but, to argue but, they so pushed the limits it, yeah. No, no. It is – I think that's right. But I think the que- – so a lot of the – in a lot of the writing about this, people say, well, he didn't do enough on Wall Street. OK, well, that's fine. But that also doesn't tell you very much. So did he not do enough in that they didn't initiate? enough of these investigations? Did they fail because they initiated them and then were just lacked the courage at the end? Did they initiate them, have plenty of courage, but then couldn't close the legal, you know, it got too complicated legally? Did they quail at the legal complexities and decide to just uh, form agreements? Yes. I don't know where yes. to point any and all of that. Last one. Last one I remain shocked that however many years after that financial crisis, how little consequence there has been for the malfeasance in there and how how little has been learned. And certainly you cannot allow the Justice Department or the Treasury Department to walk away and say, well, we couldn't. We did what we could and we got some fines out of people. And yeah, if you read Judge Rakoff on this, who's the judge who tried some of these cases or didn't get to try some of these cases but was overseeing them, he was horrified by the deals that the government was offering. He was saying these are not legitimate settlements. But here's what's so frustrating about that criticism. It's not that it lacks merit. It's that nobody ever does anything more than just say, oh, they should have done more. Like, who's the dude who should be in jail now that isn't? What is the line of prosecution that would have been successful that they didn't pursue? And that just okay, seems to me... A, the two of us clearly don't know. I know, we but it's but just... There, uh, in all the I reading like, of this... You know, Jesse I know, Isinger I know, but, at ProPublica could tell you who should be in jail. Right. right. Yes. But uh, in a lot of the reading of this... It's just accepted. And I'm not saying that, that, that that's a wrong conclusion. It's just an right. uninformed – it's let's, not I'm an not informed – I'm going to read up on move, this and move, revisit it, but I can't fix it right now. Let's move off of this particular subject because we don't know enough. I want to actually make a completely irrelevant point, which is, John, you just used the phrase bandwidth about how Eric Holder didn't have enough – may not have had enough bandwidth. What did we say before – We had the word we bandwidth. bandwidth. What was the word? Capacity. We, capacity. Yeah. It was capacity. All right. One more thing on the, the substance of Eric Holder before we get to who could replace him, which is – you touched on this, John. He he is a black man who is a, a friend and advisor to a, the first black president, and he's spoken out on issues of race and then issues which sort of touch race like imprisonment, uh, incarceration, and, and sentencing in ways that people say Obama couldn't. Do you think that he explicitly chose to become Obama's speaker on these issues? Do you think Obama encouraged him to do it? Do you think it's just something that came naturally to him? What do you guys think? I mean, none of us is an African-American man or woman, so it's it's harder for us to I mean, to doesn't it seem issues, like a combination curious. of those things? When Holder talks about his own experiences of racism, getting pulled over by the cops for no reason as a young man, as an older man walking around in Washington, D.C., he is speaking from the heart. I mean, this is very real to him. And the constant pain and discrimination that African-American men suffer as they just like try to go about their lives. He was like a perfect spokesperson for that. And I have no idea what President Obama and he talk about privately. But I would imagine that Obama, even if sometimes he 
has to distance himself like when Holder called us a nation of cowards for not talking candidly about race, which I think he's completely right about. But that was apparently not the sort of diplomatic way to put that. And then the White House distances. I still feel like Obama must be privately cheering him on and so glad that there is another very forceful, strong you know, prominent African-American official in his administration who can take those positions and go to Ferguson. And Holder is of an age where he actually lived through the American Civil Rights Movement as a sentient person and and saw it and saw it firsthand in a way and that Obama did not. And his sister-in-law integrated. She's like part of the Little Rock story. It's amazing. They talk about – and White House – Officials talk about Holder being sort of the president's heat shield on racial issues and issues of uh, civil rights and on uh, same-sex marriage as well, getting into debates and fights that the president would like to have but can't because of his bandwidth problems. What struck me in reading all of this about Eric Holder is that when we pick presidents, that one of the interesting things they can do and – and Bush had this relationship a little bit with Cheney although they didn't share anything close to the personal relationship that Obama and Holder have, although that relationship dates back only to 2004. So it's not a lifelong friendship, say, like his one with Valerie Jarrett, but is that you have in your cabinet people who you want to be always pushing on a certain set of issues. You need them to be pushing both because you want them to be pushing on those issues and then also because you need to sometimes play off against them. When they go wrong, you need to be able to cut them loose as as he did on the Khalid Sheikh Mohammed trial in New York. And so it's interesting in the way in which you have these powerful figures. I can't think of anybody in the administration who, and, and this is not true of Hillary Clinton, who went off and sort of, you know, made their mark in a direction that Obama would be generally approving of, but that was so controversial. Well, Joe Biden and gay marriage did it. But totally unintentionally. <laughs> and Biden and gay marriage is maybe a great example because the the reason went back to your original question, David, about why the White House thought he was so politically tone deaf and yet why conservatives think of him as this political hack on behalf of the president The White House thought he was toned up because he had terrible timing and those things that he executed that had a political element, he was just blind to them. But you can be bad at executing politics and you can at the same time pursue goals that conservative Republicans think are thoroughly political. So it seems to me both of those things are are possible. Let's talk about who's going to be next. Less in the particular names. I don't don't think any of us knows a huge amount about who – is likely to be the next attorney general or the next attorney general nominee. But just does Holder's departure signal this is kind of over for Obama as a department, that the attorney general's office is not going to be something which is going to be big and central, A, and B, are Republicans actually going to make a big deal out of this nomination? Or is it just not it just doesn't seem – to me, it seems like who cares? It doesn't really matter that much. Why would you Why would you waste a lot of time and energy trying to block this person who's going to get confirmed presumably eventually? But why Why cause all this service about this? John, what do you think about the politics? I'm happy to answer the other part. But I have no sense of whether they're going to – does it mat- just entirely hinge on who Obama chooses? Yes. It matters on who he chooses. Really? Could- I thought it matters whether they win the election. Who controls the Senate? Well, no. But it's so going to be during lame duck time. Depends on when you do the timing. So there are three possible timing options. Well, two and a half. One is you name the person soon. 
And you named somebody who comes from a demographic group that Democrats want to turn out in the midterm elections. So you name an African-American or you name a woman or you name an African-American woman. And you get into a big... Kamala Harris, looking good, yeah. Attorney General of California. Although somebody out there told me that she wants to run for senator, governor. I know. So. She should actually stay in California probably. And Deval Patrick, the governor of Massachusetts, says he doesn't want the job. So you would do that to get in a big fight and get your troops riled up in those in those races that you want them to be riled up in. That's a little sort of too cute probably. Anyway, then the question is, when do you actually have the nomination? Do you do it in the lame duck when you think you can get the person confirmed because you only need 51 votes because they changed the rule on appointments? And if it's a Senate, if the Republicans own the, control the Senate in the next session, you would want to do that in the lame duck. On the other hand, there is a theory that you put it, the person forward in the new Congress, in the new Senate, and make it a test of the new Republican majority in the Senate if there is such a thing. Now, there would have to be such a thing for you to do that, but you would know that because your choice is between lame duck and new session. What's interesting about that is that there is this whole theory, which we won't get, go, go into, but there is this whole question of if Republicans control the Senate, they are going to have this real push to A, show they can govern and B, moderate because there are a boatload of Republican senators up in blue or purple states. So does the president look for an opportunity to work with a Senate that has has to worry about winning over voters in blue states? Or does he immediately get into a fight with them so that Democrats can say, look, these Republicans, when they're in control, can't do a damn thing. They just hate the president. Let's turn them all out in 2016. So if you did this with the attorney general sort of right off the bat in a new Congress, it would really set the tone for what would be then two more years of ugly back and forth madness so what's it going to be i have no idea i have no idea i guess i mean i think it depends in part on the people and then it depends on who wins in november still seems out of character for the obama administration to pick a pick a big opening fight that would be really proof that obama has like changed his stripes on that right and then it also because then it's a question of like well wait but maybe harry reid wants to pick the fight and that doesn't matter mm. what the president cares about or not, because Harry Reid has a, a fair amount of power. And he could say, you're going to be gone, President Obama, but I'm going to be around here. So let me make the call on this. Good point. David, in answer to your first question about the sort of death now for the AG's office, I don't think that can be the case because there are these on- ongoing cases and controversies. There's a big Supreme Court case coming up in November about redistricting in Alabama that's a continuing fight over the Voting Rights Act and the remaining part of it, Section 2, and how much power it has. And they're going to have to come in swinging in that case. There's the possibility the Supreme Court will take a gay marriage case in the spring, which isn't, you know, the administration's position is not the main controversy. We're talking about state bans, but they're still going to have to show up and keep arguing that. And then there's this continuing question about whether James Risen is going to have to testify in the prosecution of former CIA agent Jeffrey Sterling, which raises all these press free question. So just the nature of the office means they can't just like roll over. GabFest this week is sponsored by Stamps.com. Computers are designed to make running a business easier, including your mailing and shipping. Just use Stamps.com to get 24-hour access to the post office right from your computer. There's no waiting in line, no hassles. Stamps.com makes mailing and shipping easy. Use the computer and printer you already have to get official U.S. postage for any letter or any package. Print the postage directly onto envelopes, labels, even plain paper, and then hand it to your mail carrier. There's no guesswork. 
because stamps.com will send you a digital scale that automatically calculates the exact postage you need for any class of mail. I had this today. I was trying to guess how many stamps I needed because I did not have a stamps.com scale with me. You'll never have to go to the post office again. Right now, use our promo code GABFEST for the special offer, a no-risk trial, and a $110 bonus offer, which includes a digital scale and up to $55 in free postage. For all the details for the special offer and to sign up today, go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. That's stamps.com. Enter GABFEST. The United States and a handful of Arab allies began bombing ISIS targets in Syria this week. We hit command and control centers, training facilities, oil wells, oil oil uh, refineries, in an effort to start to degrade the organization's ability to operate and to sap its wealth, which is a major source of its power. We also hit another group. The, how do you say it? The Khorasan group? You know uh, how to say good it? Enough. I no, I know. It. I've, been, I've only been it. reading about it, yeah. not hearing about the it. Khorasan so. group. It starts it's with a, it's a K. An, it's some kind of al-Qaeda offshoot that was apparently planning attacks against the West. So this means... Friends keeping score, if you have a scoreboard at home, we have conducted military action in the region against Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, Libya, and Sudan that I can remember. Am I missing any? Yemen, surely, should be in there somewhere. I said Yemen. So it's at least the Wait, did you say Saudi Arabia? No. Somalia. Somalia, okay. At least the eighth country in the region that we've conducted. eighth Muslim country also, by the way, it should be noted. (laughs) Military operations against. So we'll get to the legal question in a minute. John. What is the military escalation of today or this week where we stopped just bombing in Iraq and went into Syria? Is there any significance to that? I mean, is it like now we're, we've crossed a border, we're in a new place, it's a big deal, or is this not really that meaningful? I think it's meaningful for at least two reasons. One, the president in his uh, reformation of American foreign policy and national security in the post-Bush years has talked at times about respecting sovereignty of countries. Now, when the president ordered and authorized the bin Laden raid in Pakistan. He didn't, he didn't tell the Pakistanis. And now he's now gone and bombed in a second sovereign country. That's just an interesting marker in the evolution of the president's views. And also just when you're trying to plot the interesting course he's taken from winning the Nobel Peace Prize early in his tenure to now bombing eight different countries. The sovereignty question is kind of one little thing he would tick off. In the distinction, as I've heard it from the people who know about how this works, what's interesting in the difference between Iraq and Syria is while we're doing similar kinds of operations, big bombing operations in both countries, the second or a second piece of this strategy is that then we will, the United States will partner with forces on the ground. In Iraq, there is an army. It sort of fell apart in the face of ISIL, but it is a much, it's an army that the United States could, in theory, if everything goes right and everybody holds their breath and stands on one leg, could work out this arrangement that the president talks about. There is no such thing in Syria. And there won't be for a long time until the moderate Syrian army, to the extent there is such a thing, goes off in Saudi Arabia and gets trained, which takes a very long time. And then maybe all works out. So, When things start blowing up in Syria, which has already sent millions of refugees over the borders, it's a place where even more stuff could go wrong than in Iraq, where plenty of stuff is going wrong anyway. So that is the way I sort of think about the distinction between what we're bombing in Iraq and the bombing we're doing in Syria. Emily, I heard Jeff Goldberg on actually Mike Pesca's podcast, The GIFs, this week, and he He's a very smart student of this region. But he was saying one of the problems is that if you cannot explain to an average intelligent American what is going on here, 
you may have a long-term policy problem. So do you feel like you understand what is going on here? You are an average, <laughs> I'm, intelligent. I'm glad to stand in American. for average and intelligent. So I feel like I get that ISIS is bad. That seems clear. They're beheading people. Bad, bad. Corps that I've identif- never heard of before. You identify what? so you identify their badness as they beheaded a couple of Americans. No, I mean more that they're like taking all this territory and out there so evil that. But that's not what you said. You out. said it was the beheadings. Well, okay, he's using true. that, that was, as a signifier I fell for that of propaganda. General, but see, that's that's a big issue. I think that's a really important right. point. Is like, are we? Intervening in these the in these countries because they beheaded a couple of sure, Americans, no, or because they're taking territory and disrupting. But they I are can't taking remember. territory. It's we're, all true, right? Yes, well, but well, it's also. I do think we're overreacting to the beheadings. I also think they seem like they are genu- genuinely bad. I mean, I, and destabilizing. I mean, the, I'm pretty much an isolationist at heart, or at least in part, as much as I'm anything, and. And I think that is probably pretty average American right now, too. So I kind of wish things weren't so screwed up in Syria and that we could just continue to ignore it. But it does seem like it's just getting more and more out of control. What I feel really confused about is how we can take out ISIS and maybe this new Khorasan group without also somehow propping up the Assad regime, which is also – evil and terrible. And that part of it seems like, so we're just going to bomb the hell out of particular parts of Syria? And then what's going to rush into that power vacuum? I feel worried about that. Iraq seems more like, okay, if you contain them or get them out, then, you know, the Kurds can do their thing. And I mean, not that I have very much hope in the central Iraqi government, but at least they have a new... Maybe you're giving them some chance to get their act together. You know, I can't remember who it is who said... This so, probably Teddy Roosevelt so, or Winston Churchill. Yeah, uh, or, no, no, it's or a contemporary. F. Or F. Scott Fitzgerald. It's a contemporary, so I can't. Um, but part of what's somewhere in the equation here is that the U.S. is acting because both Europeans, but also our partners in the region, as we say, want the U.S. to take a leadership role. And part of the reason the U.S. takes a leadership role is we have the most bombs and the most ability to do that. But also, it is argued publicly by the president and others that there's a moral role here that the U.S. has to take action when ISIL is threatening people, whether it's our people or or Iraqis. So in that calculus where like the moral force here is played, somebody said, you know, it's a shame that when 200,000 Syrians were gassed by Assad, that the U.S. didn't do anything. But now there have been two beheadings and the U.S. did. Our morality is so selective. So that selective morality... And somebody may have a counter argument for why that is not selective morality. But the fact of the matter is that counter argument will never get heard except in the quietude of an hour long debate in some symposium later. And just so now as a national, as the United States is viewed across the globe, that conundrum, it seems to me to be pretty a pretty major one. I think one other thing you have to add on the on the ISIL threat is the extent to which a lot of people who otherwise disagree in the American foreign policy college or conventional wisdom believe that the that if you allow the vacuum to sit, that threats do grow, that threats against the West are being hatched, that that's a reason to be engaged too. Maybe not at this level, maybe in different ways, but that's another reason it's a threat. So it's not just the beheadings, but there's I have this really other. lost patience with the consensus of the American foreign policy well, establishment that's fine, after but what they've done. But if you're enumerating but, the reasons for the action, that would have to I, be one you'd include. I suspect that... This is so cynical and dark, but I would be so much happier with 
no appeals to morality, with no discussions of morality about these cases. Because I, I just, just we get American so lost. Yeah, it's self, American self-interest. We get so lost when we when we start talking about moral questions, and it it appears to be distracting, and you you end up just you know like a like a little terrier rushing down a, a path, chasing that that squirrel, and then another squirrel, and then another squirrel to to no effect. Like it, you lose any sense of like here is a strategy that we have, and there may be great strategic reasons. I suspect there are strong strategic reasons to bomb ISIL and to bomb the Khorasan group that we should consider, but. I hate that it's couched in these moral terms because that way lies misleading the American people like kind of cheesy, horrible populism. It lies adventures that we just don't want to be on. So so give me well, like a cynical burned. Henry Kissinger version and I'll pay more attention. It also burns the words for when you really need them. I yeah. mean there are times that we as a country have acted and uh, based on feeling a sense of a moral pressure to do so. And I'm not sure that's wrong. It's just, as you say, the rhetoric gets used up. All right, quickly, Emily. I mean, the other let's thing do- is I feel like this ties into the legal question. So to me, it's pretty clear that what the administration's doing is illegal in the sense that this is one more ratcheting up of the president's powers of war making. You know, if he gets out quickly, he could claim for that reason to be staying within the bounds of the War Powers Act. And he did send notice to Congress. And there's some, you know, talk of Congress actually creating a new authorization for the use of military force that would be targeted to this. But what is risible is the notion that the old 2001 AUMF applies to ISIL, which is not an ally of al-Qaeda, quite the opposite, or that even that new Khorasan group, it seems like a ridiculous stretch. And so in the same way that the Libya hostilities, the justification for that was like, oh, we don't have soldiers on the ground, so this isn't, quote, hostilities, no matter how many bombs we drop. It just every time a president stretches the definition like that, we create concern about and a Congress the next and a time. Congress refuses to step in. A this Congress is, refuses yes, to act. Congress this is, is where it's, totally. it's just so just so embarrassing. I mean, not only did Congress not act when they could have when they were in town on these questions of authorization and funding and like just to have a debate about what is an in, really important thing. And by the way, in the House of Representatives, for those of you who may have missed, the, missed this, they're suing the president for, for overstepping his bounds. So on the one hand, they're suing the president for overstepping his bounds on the Affordable Care Act. But when it comes time for at least the House, but also the Senate, the House and the Senate, to speak up on the crucial issue of killing and death. They bail and bolt and leave town. And then if you look at the campaigns where that are going on, there are occasionally Republicans who are attacking Democrats on ISIL and national security, in part because the president's approval rating is at about 30 on questions of national security. So it kind of allows them to bring up an issue that's bad for any Democrat. But having said that, which is essentially just a free hit politically, it's barely being debated in these races. So if you think elections should be, at least in some way, a discussion of what are the important issues of the day, the fact that it's also not really being debated that much in any of these campaigns is equally embarrassing. All right. Let us move on to our third topic. There is a fascinating article in The Atlantic by Ezekiel Emanuel, doctor. He's an oncologist, a medical ethicist, one of the architects of Obamacare. He's 57 years old. It's about how he plans to die at 75 or rather to stop fighting death at 75. That it, once he reaches 75, he will only seek palliative care 
He's not going to get chemotherapy if he has cancer. He's not going to get invasive surgeries. He, I think he said he would eschew antibiotics, I believe. He and, said he wouldn't take antibiotics. Next. That was where I was like, uh, oh, my God. <laughs> the argument he makes is manifold. It's, it's Part of it is that you stop being a productive. You're worse at your job. You're not useful to society. We'll get to that part of it. Uh, you'll have raised your children. Your children will be off. Your disability arrives. It sticks with you at, at high chance of mental decline. And you impose an enormous cost to your children and to society. You're gaining years without gaining health or happiness. He is not proposing euthanasia, let's be clear, but this idea that he will himself stop. Nor is he actually proposing anything societal. This is, this is a personal statement. I just should, should note just – I was on a train this week, and I Zeke is Zeke is my neighbor and a friend. So I saw him on the train. I saw him out in Colorado yeah. getting off his yeah. bike. And, like, but I was like, I just saw him, and, I, and then I saw him on the train. He like walked by me. We were both on the phone. He didn't see me, and I and then I I went and kind of tried to find him for about three minutes later. And I said, you know, I didn't, I just didn't see you. And he said, why didn't you try to find me? And I said, well, why am I going to waste some of the last thirty-one years I have to live <laughs> looking for you on a train? And he said, actually, friendship and community are important. To, markers of health. So you should have done that rather than whatever you were doing. Oh, great. Um, They're, yeah. They are markers of health. I wonder if they're contributors to health, but that's the same. So I was, I am so sick as an editor. I've had so much dealing with these immortalist people, these people who think like we should all live forever. We can live to be 200 and in good health. And I'm so sick of those people that just reading this piece by Zeke was a real tonic. Why, uh, why are you sick of them? Because I just think it's nonsense. Like that, like the quest for immortality is a boring, stupid quest. What there should be is a quest for people to have good health for a reasonable lifespan and then die But what quickly determines and, and reasonable? So are you all what for the reasonab- 75 marker? Yeah, I'm, I'm in fa- I think I'm, I'm in favor of it, except not for the utilitarian reasons. But yeah, but basically I think he is right. I don't know if it's 75. Maybe it's 75 now and in 10 years if, if in fact but what improvements it- in health mean you can be generally you're really super healthy at, at 80 that we say, OK, at 80. But I think his, his instincts are right. Like the, but that, that, increased- they, that the costs of the elderly are tremendous and they, they are emotionally draining and fiscally draining and that we spend way too much money on the medical care for people who are in, in decline. And it's enormously wasteful to society and we'd be much better focused off on health measures for children, on getting people started right, on the health measures for, for, for people who are in their prime and just not – spend time kind of prolonging life. Well, that's a second argument. That's a separate argument. That is unassailable, but that's actually crazily not what he was exactly arguing. If he was arguing that when I am 75 or 80, 80 would have been to me a more reasonable benchmark. I am not doing well. Then I will not treat my illnesses. That would have resonated for me. But what he said was that if he is not operating at the very height of his Ezekiel Emanuel powers, he might as well be dead. His example of his father who had a heart attack and is like living independently at home with his wife seemed happy, but is, quote, sluggish and therefore should be like trotted out to the slaughterhouse. (laughs) I was honestly horrified. I mean, talk about not honoring the the contributions of the elderly. Also, sorry, you cannot interrupt me. I am not done ranting. The other thing that totally troubled me about this was the notion that you can't have some kind of existence of – you know, gardening and hanging out with your grandchildren. You have to be like contributing that intellectually. Part some, is wrong. It's so okay. elitist. Agreed. I can't stand it. Agreed. And I basically ended Agreed. up feeling like the Emanuels exist just to make the rest of us type A folks feel like we are less crazy. No. Like that's their Agreed. function Agreed. in the universe. No, it's, everyone needs to know, of course, and most people do, that 
Zeke is the eldest brother of Rom, Rom who's the mayor of Chicago, Ari. and Ari, who's a super agent, you know, model model of a character on Entourage. You know, Zeke is the underachiever in the bunch. That's <laughs> right. the funny part of it. Yes, that that kind of utilitarian, like people are valuable only insofar as they are productive and a productive by very strict meritocratic measures that and here the I am climbing Kilimanjaro with yeah. my twenty. No, that's totally nephews. irritating. I mean, it's kind that's of sick, totally irritating. Right? That part of it is irritating, but the larger part of it, which is what is the responsibility of you as a as an aging person towards society at large, is a really good question to be asking. A really but good. Well, no, there's also a- have a tremendous amount of wisdom to offer back to the rest of us, and we should be making room for that. Yes, we should not be – I mean, there should be a different balancing of healthcare resources. I am all for that. Like once people are really failing and, and essentially dying, then that's a different calculus. But I mean, I you know, I'm going to personalize this. I had a grandfather who was sick for a long time with Alzheimer's who I think in, in retrospect, even at the time it was clear, that would have been merciful if he had died sooner in many ways. But my grandmother who lived till 96 had this incredible – Incredibly wonderful old age, which I wouldn't trade for anything, and then died like a fast and relatively like decent death, you know, and that seems to me like that alternate model that I would never, ever not want to make room for. Not to mention the fact that all of our parents are in this age range, except for John's mom, who already died. And I don't think that we like want to be killing them off in this way. No, but uh, but uh, there's a <laughs> meaningful pause. Yeah, no. Well, no, no. I just it's oh, it, no. it, it, it's you want to try and it's hard not to take killing. the duck take the yeah uh, not 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 killing <laughs> but but killing really. Um, what what about just a, a sort of a hearty shove down in the street? I mean, not killing per se. Um, it's hard to kind of untangle the kind of crazy aspects of this argument from the public policy aspect, which would be interesting to see if you put – well, there are two public policy aspects that are that are interesting. What if you reverse the way the money was spent? And all the money that you spent on keeping people healthy, younger, getting them set up into good habits, that would probably increase longevity. It would not only reduce the fiscal strain, but it would make them live longer because they would be more attentive to their health. They would uh, seek preventative care rather than trying to deal with things at the very end of their life. They wouldn't engage in behaviors that cause and create so much of these troubles at the end, smoking being a huge one. But the other public policy problem, although it's not really a problem, but it's just worth noting, and certainly a lot of conservatives made this point, is that Zeke Emanuel worked at the center of and was very much a part of the Affordable Care Act. And as you know, a lot of conservatives made turned one of the cost-limiting measures of the Affordable Care Act into something they called death panels. And so for to have him talk in this way confirms every conspiracy that people had about death panels. But, you know, but that's just ridiculous. We have to have this discussion. I am so glad that Zeke is trying to pose this this question and force people to think about it. Now, his conclusion, which is a totally individualistic conclusion about his personal choice, is one that no one else is going to make. You are not going to have our, – our parents are not going to be like, you know what? No antibiotics for us this week. Sorry. And That's it would be happen. horrifying but, if but they did make but that he choice. Is absolutely, well, it wouldn't be horrifying to say – I thought his point about the PSA test was great. The point where like, yeah, like the doctor fine. runs a PSA test on him. He's like, I don't want it. Don't tell me the results. I don't want to know. Don't give me the results. But that is different from I have the flu. I don't get treatment for an infection that otherwise is not okay, life Okay. But the overall conversation that he wants to have is 
incredibly important conversation and is is disingenuous and hugely damaging to the country to have people say, oh, it's death panels. Oh, we can't talk about this. It's like we have to talk about it. Well, we have to talk about it yeah, in but a very ruthless, ruthless, so ruthless way. But that's why – but go ahead, Emily. <laughs> Well, just that I'm, I agree with what you said, David, but I don't actually think this article made this argument because he ducked. He said, oh, I'm not advocating for anyone else. I'm not saying that we should – you know, he gives the, t- the statistics about ha- that we spend too much money on the end of life and that our quality of life measures and health measures are not extending along with longevity. There's like a couple of really cogent paragraphs about that. And then he goes off on this totally bonkers idea that if you're not like, you know, Superman of intellectual intellectual contributors, then you should be walked off and off the stage. And that lost me in this way where I was talking about this article with someone who was, is over 80 yesterday. I was like, you couldn't, he, there he wasn't couldn't a way it. to have the- You inter- couldn't understand it. The mental capacity no, <laughs> was not, not there. It was a little sluggish. That is not true. Really. No, it was like you couldn't even have a, a, com- a useful conversation because it was so glaringly kind of awful to essentially like this argument means like you should be dead. There's no other way to read it. And that is so obviously wrong that it's like you can't have the more helpful, interesting, engaged conversation we should be having about all the issues you just raised. Right. And I wonder – we should come up with a term for this because there is some point at which the value you achieve in raising an important topic – that you outlined, David, and putting it back into the center of the conversation, which in this case is a conversation about the imbalance of the way we care for things. The points you get for raising an important issue then get deducted if you make the argument in a way that is so insane that you end up doing harm to the issue that you've raised. I don't I don't know if that's the case in what happened here, but there is. We definitely know that that's the case in plenty of times, which is like, yes, you get points for raising it, but you undermine your case by making it in such a crazy way that you've actually now put this issue further back away from general conversation because it's now about like killing people who are 75, which may be a misreading of his argument. But because you've argued it poorly, that's where people end up. Well, we sure wouldn't be having a discussion about this if he hadn't written the story. Yeah, so it was excellent fodder for outrage. I yeah. really, I mean, because I started off so with thinking I was going to feel the way you apparently still feel. Like, oh, good, we're having the conversation Wait, about. But, but you, you could divorce the craziness of his, of his. No, I was so offended by the craziness well, that he. Oh, lost so now you're now you're like, let's do heroic measures. You're going to be. You're no, gonna be I'm not. Like, no, she just heroic. found the argument. Like, let's have the real conversation yeah. here about how really old people who are having super expensive operations, which may not even really extend their lives, and demand all this very expensive hospital care and recovery. That's a bad, seems like a bad idea to me. But the, he wasn't even writing about that. He was talking about not taking antibiotics, which is crazy. One last thought. David, you don't like people who talk about trying to um, you know, achieve the fountain of youth or stopping aging and all of that thing, except that you talked about the when you were trying to figure out what age it would be, whether it's 75 or 80, the confusion you were having about what to, where to set the age date is created by the fact that people have spent all this time extending life and that life is then extending longer before you would put a period on it or to say that it had fallen into this kind of But the overwhelming majority stage. of the kinds of ways that we've extended life in useful ways are public health measures that are helping people who would have died at 50 now get to die at 80. 
So why is that like bad? Those are good, right? But aren't those? those are, uh, but aren't but those? those, are those are isn't the, what is, is inspiring it, those? The like d- the search for no. Those are inspiring. Ever longer life. No. What's what those are inspired by this idea that we have to improve the public health of all, not this, not this individualistic. I want to be immortal, which I is which saying. is how these people tend to be motivated. All right, let's go to cocktail chatter. Man, when you were drinking from the fountain of youth at the Bazelon household this weekend, Emily, what are you going to be chattering about? So I read a book in the last couple of weeks called The Bone Clocks, a book that David correctly basically slammed in Slate. It's by David Mitchell, who wrote Cloud Atlas and Black Swan Green and other books that I've really liked. I also really, in the end, decided this was not a great book. But I'm still really glad I read it for two reasons. One was that I both read and listened to it. This is the first time I've downloaded an audio book and then gone back and forth between the text and the audio. What a great way to read a book. It's so obvious, but I'd never done it before. And so, and. The best part of it is when you when I was spacing out listening, which always happens to me, I could easily go back and find the thing, the key detail that I had missed. And also, this book is read by um, I didn't love all the narrators, but especially the first couple, the first three, I thought were fabulous and really added to the text. The second reason I'm glad I read this book is that without giving away too much, it ends the last section of it. I thought was really startling and memorable and a downer. I will. I will admit, but just like worth getting to in some pretty deep way. It would so, be fine. You can read the you can read the last section without reading the rest of the book. In fact, I would advise. That's true. That might nothing, be good. Maybe the first the and the, the last. I liked the first section too. Hmm. So David Mitchell, there's a piece uh, that he wrote. I guess Roder is being interviewed. I think wrote anyway in the Atlantic about his favorite poem, which is a James Wright poem called Lying in a Hammock at William Duffy's Farm in Pine Island, Minnesota. It's a fantastic poem. And the essay that he wrote about that poem and what it um, and what it makes you think about appreciating what's around you is fantastic, which leads me into my chatter, which is that I've been Elegantly um, done. thinking about restraint and the way in which artists – and this is sort of what that essay, Mitchell's essay, is about, which is the way in which artists restrain <laughs> that themselves. That dude has no restraint. <laughs> He's the wrong person to be writing about restraint. Let well, me that's that. – okay. So, But anyway, I've been thinking about the way in which we all have to practice a certain amount of restraint in our insane lives. But it's more than will, willpower. There is a creative aspect to restraint that's not just like I'm turning off my email, but that we – set up a kind of scaffolding for the work that we do and w- within that scaffolding or the scanty plot of ground for those of you who are fans of Wordsworth that helps us be more creative. So anyway, I came across the origin story of Cat in the Hat, which uh, is everybody's favorite book or should be or else you're a mongrel. So when Dr. Seuss wrote it, he was forced to use a vocabulary list from six and seven-year-olds that he basically, whenever, as anybody who read Dr. Seuss knows, whenever he needed a rhyme or just to get himself out of a jam, he would just create a word or a person. And that's what makes it so awesome and wonderful. But in this case, he was given by his editor this list, and he couldn't use any word not on the list. And so he basically went was going bonkers. Like he tried three different times to start and he would come up with an idea and then he'd find no way to express the idea because it wasn't on the damn list. So <laughs> finally he gets to the end and he was he was basically going insane and, and deciding that he was going to throw the whole project overboard. And the reason he was just given the list, I should say, is because they wanted to create a book that was a must read for first graders. I mean, who among us has tried, uh, who has not tried to create the, the must read for, for first graders to replace the Dick and Jane books? 
But it, he wasn't having any luck. So finally, he said, I'll read it with the list one more time. And if I can find two words that rhyme, that'll be my book. So he found cat and hat. So the rest is history. But, but there's so many words. I mean, the sun did not shine. It was too wet to play. So we sat in the hat, the house all that cold, cold, wet day. There's so many words that rhyme. Well, I know, but apparently but he until he ones, got David. through the that blockage. Book, it's called The Cat in yeah. the Hat. He needed to Sally. kind of, he needed to, there we too. to find oh, out. The fish. Something. The fish doesn't mm-hmm. rhyme with anything. Wish. Uh, swish, swish. Oh, no, I'm thinking of uh, uh, one fish, two fish. Wish. Yeah. Wish. Wait. Can I say up, about up, up the must read for first graders? Do you think that Wish. kids read that book and to up, themselves? Up, up. I mean, I read yeah. that book endlessly to my children. I don't remember them picking it up. Well, this goes also back to your audiobooks thing, which is that I have a long uh, – we can have a long discussion. Perhaps we should do it on Slate Plus someday about uh, – Slate Plus is the membership program for Slate readers. A conversation about audiobooks and books that you read. But my kids l- listened endlessly to it on audiobooks as they were going to bed and still do sometimes. Gosh, so in addition to us reading it to them. But that is now this whole God. new thing. I so have neglected my poor third child. I don't think he listens to Dr. Seuss or knows Dr. Seuss. Don't, you get, I'm sure somebody reads to Gideon in your house. We like, read to him, but it's not. But, no, but, but no, it's mostly Dr. just Seuss. the times. <laughs> it's just like, you know, endless it's, David it's Brooks. Really he good. always seems cheery to me when I visit. Uh, oh, man. Um, and, the, and the David Hyde Pierce and the others who read the Dr. Zeus are great voices. So I recommend that to anyone, including David. Stumendous, stumendous, durorous. If you play Dixie, we'll join in the chorus. That's a great one, John. All right. I have another Teddy Roosevelt chatter. I had one last week, but I have another one because there is a wonderful series in the Boston Globe about presidents and coffee. There's a deep and long relationship between presidents and their coffee. George Washington was a coffee importer. There were Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln branded coffees. President Obama is not a coffee drinker, apparently. He's a he's an honest tea honest drinker. Honest tea. Yeah. Yeah. Our friend but, Seth Goldman and Barry Nelbuff's company. So this this series erupted because the reporter tried to get the White House to say what kind of coffee they buy, what kind of coffee they serve. And the White House treated it like a state secret. The White House would not release information about what kind of coffee they're serving at the White House, which was just funny. Um, you know, it's the fuel of Washington, and yet they're not even admitting what it is. So this prompted this Boston Globe reporter, whose name escapes me right now, to do a series. But the the best details, he, he went back and looked at all these presidents and coffee, is Teddy Roosevelt, of course. And Teddy Roosevelt apparently had a cup, a coffee cup the size of a bathtub. John, you got to listen to this. Do you know what I'm about to say? I think so. Yeah. So that he, Teddy Roosevelt said of Maxwell House coffee it, that it was good to the last drop. He no did, way. And that became... One of the great advertising slogans of the 20th century was just something Teddy Roosevelt's description. Is this apocrypha or is it oh, true? I don't know if that part is true, but his love of coffee and the constant consumption of coffee yeah. is definitely something I've read a lot about. And John McCain, who sort of patterns himself after Teddy Roosevelt, is the same, is the same way. Having traveled with him, there is always a coffee cup in his hand and from which he is drinking. I mean, it's a – But uh, has he coined – he has a not coined Starbucks, a new slogan for Starbucks, slogan, no. Starbucks. Although he does have a, a CD of John Denver tunes on offer at Starbucks. John McCain does? No, <laughs> he doesn't actually. <laughs> that, was, that was almost good. Our intern this week is Max Tawney. Our producer is Mike Wolo. Thank you, Mike. Our executive producer is Andy Bowers. Our show page is slate.com slash GabFest. It has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash GabFest. Our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest, and our email address is gabfest at slate.com. Remember to get tickets to our Chicago show. It's slate.com slash 
slash chai gabfest. It's going to be great on November 12th. You can subscribe to the Gabfest on iTunes, leave a comment and rating while you're there. If you like the show, that really helps us when you leave a comment and rating. Search for Slate Political Gabfest in the iTunes store for Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson. I'm David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week. Week.